Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. Today, I have Ashley Kwame with me. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist specializing in EFT therapy, which she will explain. Ashley and I met because she's really into financial therapy and studying to become a certified financial therapist. So we're going to spend a lot of time diving deep on couples, money, attachment theory, and oh, whatever else we decide that's fun that comes up along the way. Ashley, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ed. It's good to be here. Uh, yes, thank you. Well, not everyone will be watching this, but your shirt says, therapy is cool. <laughs> it does. Therapy is cool. It therapy does. is yeah. cool. I like that. So, Ashley, tell the listeners about yourself and why is therapy so cool? Well, so I got into therapy after being kind of the dear Abby of my friend group, uh, from my perception at least, and uh-huh. uh, had this thought that maybe I should get paid uh, to do this. Yeah. Sort of kind of joking, right? But was always interested, at least in relationships. Um, uh-huh. So, as you said, I'm a marriage and family therapist presently. I've been practicing for well over a decade in private practice, specializing in couples, specifically using emotionally focused therapy, um, and more recently getting into financial therapy. Uh, I can thank my husband for that. He's a CFP. And so just interested in finances. Obviously, they show up, as you know, in the room when we work with couples. More recently, I've been exploring um, just how to help navigate that um, using and also attuning to the attachment side or while using, um, you know, more attachment theories and models. Wow. You know, I don't know how many couples there are out there. I know there's a handful, but where one partner is a financial planner and one partner is a therapist. <laughs> it's interesting, right? <laughs> uh, it's, it's a thing. Uh, I'm thinking through my Rolodex of all the people I know, and there's only a couple other people. Yeah, I would be interested in reading them. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, well, I'm going to have to make some introductions after this interview, perhaps. We'll see. Uh, but yeah, so for those that are new to the show and maybe not familiar with attachment theory and EFT, can you give kind of a high-level view of what those are from your perspective and why they're so important in the conversation we're going to have? Yeah, so... Attachment theory, at least how I explain it in a very um, crayons level. That's Ooh, uh, Yep, I like it. Are we talking 12-pack box or not 64? I'm really, I'm partial to the 24-pack, but you know. 24-pack, got it. If got we it. need to scale it down, then 12 is fine. As long as it's yeah. better than the six-pack that you get. Uh, I think uh, or the two-pack at the restaurant. <laughs> no, I can't do anything with these two colors. No, you can't. And heaven forbid if your uh, if your kids get different colors there, and then they're arguing over over the yellow crayon. So, um, but from a crayons level perspective, how at least I talk about attachment theory is just looking at how our earlier relationships with our primary caregivers, um, how they have shaped 
the way that we think, feel, and do relationships in our, mm. in our lives, our more intimate relationships. Uh-huh. So that's kind of my basic crayons level um, for, for folks making to Think, feel, and do relationships. Yes. How do you think, feel, and do relationships? I love that you say that because I think I use those almost exact same words. Really? Right? Like when I was trying to wrap, summarize psychology in a nutshell, it's the study of our thoughts, our feelings, and our behaviors. Behaviors on the, as the do piece, right? Yeah. That, that like boils down all that happens to us psychologically into its core essence. Right. And then from an attachment lens, right? Taking how we think, feel, and do, but looking at what... We, I guess maybe the origins of the way in which we think, feel, and do, and some of those, um, you know, markers along the way, whether it's experiences, positive or negative, um, and how do those come in and and shift, uh, you know, those thoughts, feelings, and behaviors uh, as well. Wow. Um, I'm just even just kind of reveling in this for a moment, listeners, just kindred spirits, knowing that someone, a fellow LMFT. So attachment is the study or the understanding of how our primary caregiving relationships affect our thinking, feeling, and doing. That's not just true for any one individual, but that's true for all of humanity. Is that fair to say? I would say so. Yeah, it is a, you know, we are primed and wired, right, to do and be in connection with others. Uh-huh. Um, and so, yeah, I think that it is a global, you know, seeking that connection. Um, I think that that is global, that is universal, I think to, and the, really kind of the essence of being a human in a lot of ways as well. If we want to get real deep. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, you, well, I want to get real deep. I don't know if yeah. the listeners are like, I'm commuting right now. This is too deep. Take it back up two <laughs> levels, please. On the psychological depth. The essence of humanity. What is that? <laughs> what is the essence of humanity? Oh no. Philosophy. Super existential. Right? Oh, super existential. Okay. So you guys are listening to super nerds right now. What is the meaning of life? Let's just go ahead and get after it. And from an attachment perspective, the meaning of life is connection. Absolutely. Yeah. And when connection breaks down or we recognize that it's broken down, that's when we're in crisis. Yeah. And yeah. distress and despair, right? And so, your job as a relational therapist is to help people repattern their relationships, the sequence of thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Is that absolutely, yeah? But in in finding healing together, so I think that mm. what is really powerful because so many people reach out, and maybe this is your experience as it is others, is they reach out and they want help with their relationships. Um, uh, from an individual level, um, mm-hmm. an individual therapy, but there is so much power to having the couple unit come in mm-hmm. together and work to repattern um, or shift or really rewire how this relationship dynamic works. So that is at least my experience as a couples therapist is that um, healing can happen um, exponentially faster in just a deeper, a deeper way, um, too, when it's done together versus separate or independent. Okay. So that base question, why is that Ashley? Well, I think that 
you know, and not to like nerd out on like studies and oh, let's um, nerd out on a few studies. Let's nerd you know. out on some studies. <laughs> okay, fast forward a minute, two minutes if you're not into the nerdy study thing, and just come back and rejoin us. But yeah, and, and I will, I do want to preface this to say it's really important to know that folks like Ashley and I are reading the scientific literature. That this is not stuff just born out of personal experience, right? The Dear Abby stuff, that's personal experience, life perspective. The stuff that marriage and family therapist is out of hard science in the soft realities of humanity. Yeah. And, and that's why I was drawn to EFT at least, mm-hmm. right? And that and Gottman methods, you know, too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But, you know, I tell my clients that I don't, I, I do my best not to just pull things out of my butt. Um, like the things that I am doing and or sharing um, or suggesting, you know, they are coming from a place of, of research and of literature. Uh, it's not just this, you know, guessing game where I'm throwing, you know, darts kind of at the board. Like, you know, it's coming from from a place. So, science science has really revealed what a healthy relationship looks like, mm-hmm. and the process and primary mechanisms to get there. Right. Just like we know how to heal other disease processes pretty consistently. We know how to heal relational disconnection pretty consistently. Right. Right. Not perfectly. Not perfectly. No, (laughs) but better. Pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good. Yeah. Okay. Pretty good. Mm -hmm. Right. So if we geek out uh, and you probably know the study, you can help me with it too. But um, some of the EFT research has found um, and did this really awesome study looking at just the brain and how it responds to, you know, healthy relationship and connection and just the power of it. And so mm. they had a couple prior to EFT undergo, um, and I think it's fMRI, right? A scan, uh-huh. right? Mm-hmm. And, yep. um, the, they scanned the person's brain and they, they could tell that they were told they were going to get a shock. And so the shock was, you know, going to be perceived as painful. And yeah. so, um, holding obviously a stranger's hand, um, or I'm sorry, holding their partner's hand who they had not gone through EFT with the shock was perceived as pretty painful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think with a stranger, it was less painful and by themselves, it was the most painful. Yes. Post EFT, uh, holding their partner's hand, going through the same scan. Um, the shock was like barely noticeable. Um, after, you know, multiple, multiple sessions of healing together that the way in which the brain perceived pain, you know, after going through EFT or healing together is completely different than before when the couple maybe was in distress. This is so cool. I love that we're straight into brain imaging talking about the power of relational connection and restoration and clear before and afters and using yeah. a, a very clearly painful stimulus um, as a shock. And, yeah. you know, I think that there's many similar types of studies that I'm thinking about my actually clinical supervisor who was studying um, cancer patient outcomes and, and cancer patients that had close relational bonds had far better outcome and recovery times than those that were alone. Right. Yeah. Right. Which really speaks right to the de- the depth of the human condition and the need for relational bondedness and knowing that you have someone there, knowing like in your soul, in your gut, in your chest, in all the crevices of your body, that knowing 
buffers so much pain. Yeah. And makes tolerable so much suffering. So why EFT, right? You know, why, like that's, you know, really the answer to that question, you know, going through couples therapy and obviously I'm biased to EFT, Mm -hmm. um, but just working through the couples, um, you know, healing process together, you know, well, I think EFT is the best model for that, but certainly just going through the couples therapy process together, you know, it can literally rewire the way in which your brain works, um, uh, you know, from a perception of pain, of everything, how you do money, um, how you feel about money, lots of other things too. So um, big proponent here for attachment, EFT, and doing some good couples work. Well, I think it grows out of this, right? Right in between that is that the neural pathways hold the the images and deliver the images of that relational connection. And our first ones are with our parents and our caregivers. And so in attachment theory, we talk a lot about the division between secure attachment and insecure attachment. And then within insecure attachment, there's those th- the three different styles of insecure attachment. Right. Yeah. And so we're trying to work on creating mental representations in your mind of someone that you are securely attached to. When you stop and think about your partner, what image comes to your mind? That image is there for you unconsciously working for your benefit or your detriment all the time. Yeah. Keeping you safe, right? That's how our brains are wired. Keeping us safe, not physically, but like mentally, emotionally, you know, as well. So when you're working with couples, Ashley, what are some of those, I don't know, want to say early interventions that you're doing with couples when they're just getting started with you when they're kind of midway in their their care with you and then when they're getting closer to the end what do you see happening over this time of treatment and care and what's the time frame typically looking like yeah i you know in a humorous way i think the first thing that i notice is that they sit either on i have two couches in my office and uh-huh. um, depending upon the level of distress that they're in uh, one might sit on one couch, the other on the other couch. Uh-huh. Um, and if they're on, or if they're on the same couch, generally they are pretty far apart and they may use the rationale of, oh, I just like sitting on like the corner here with like the armrest. <laughs> yes, 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 uh, yeah. And there's no judgment. <laughs> right, yeah, no, totally get it. Yeah. I'm not judging, right? But that is very, very obvious where they sit from when they come into my office, first and foremost, you know, from an observation place, like they're usually very separate. Um, There's usually not physical contact, like when they're sharing distressful or hurtful things, you know, you start to see just that change over the course of therapy, where they start sitting closer together, they start reaching for each other physically, you know, hand on the leg, holding hands, even like turning and looking at each other. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I'll do interventions where I have couples like turn to each other and say, um, Mm. you know, heartfelt emotional, um, you know, statements. Uh, And so you even start to see that become easier and not as like uncomfortable where they're squirming. (laughs) They don't have as difficult of a time making eye contact with each other. Um, Yeah. So, you know, from start to finish, those are just really behavioral 
um, observations, indicators of how change um, is occurring throughout the therapy process. Uh, you know, but also for many couples too, just the depth um, of which they're willing to explore um, and share and be vulnerable uh, as well starts to expand and increase. Mm. Vulnerability, when I say vulnerability, not just, you know, that hurt my feelings, but, you know, when you do this thing, it makes me very afraid and I feel very scared that I'm going to lose you. Or I feel very scared that I'm not maybe a priority to you. My place with you is uncertain. Uh, That's some pretty like like gut level vulnerable stuff there, right? Yes. That's different than you hurt my feelings. And not to say that sharing you hurt my feelings isn't vulnerable because it is. But there's a depth there, you know, to that, that over time you start to see as bonding and healing occur, you know, the more healed you are, the more vulnerable, right? We're willing to kind of go to those places. So you, you would say that there's a relationship between healing and vulnerability. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think uh, hmm, most couples, I guess, by the time they come into couples therapy, they know they're in distress. They're not in too much denial about that for the most part. Yeah, for sure. But how long are they in denial about distress before they come into therapy oftentimes? Oh yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. I will say in general years. Although I say that and although here in the last, probably since in the last like three to four years, I have had increasingly more and more couples coming in in a more proactive state. Uh, uh-huh. So thing, we just had our first child. We're not getting along and we're bickering a lot. We really love each other, but you know, there's just some stress that's causing us to you know, have some yeah. friction. We want to nip this in the butt you know, before it. Yeah. So I have started to see that more and more, which is exciting for me. Really I see exciting. it on your face. Yeah, yeah. I get really excited. When those couples reach out, but I would say in general, it's several years, um, several years that a lot of couples experience distress. When do you think that a lot of couples intentionally or unintentionally normalize relational distress as if, well, that's just the way, what it means to be married. So that's like, they, it's hard for them to even imagine that a healthier relationship exists for them. Maybe they know like, or they hope and dream of that healthier relationship, but they don't really think that it's possible because no one in their social circle actually has a flourishing, deeply intimate relationship. And so, you know, when I ask my couples, you know, well, how many couples in your life really do you think are super close and very intimate and very safe? And and a lot of times they'll say none, we don't have anybody in our life that we feel like really is that where we would like to be. Yeah, And that's, you know, right. That's part of, I mean, the only way that you get to relational vulnerability is through experience and practice. Absolutely. Yeah. I do have like some, um, or have had some experience like with couples maybe who have had positive supports, support systems, but to your point, like most don't have that type of relational role model. Um, but I, I think couples are, it's easy when you're in the throes of raising children in particular to just become so distracted 
by like, well, it will get better when they are in elementary school. Uh, It'll get better when they're in middle and high school. We'll have more time together. uh, It will get better when they leave the house. And then, oh, bleep, it's not better. (laughs) Like, and now it's. Well, shit. Now I didn't know if we were saying that. (laughs) I didn't know if you next to your podcast. Oh, yes. Episodes can be explicit. That's all right. Okay. We talk about money. We talk about sex. We talk about drugs and rock and roll if we need to. Oh, perfect. Oh, well, yes, they do. They have like those oh shit moments, right? Where it's like, it's been now decades. You know, they come in like, yep. actually, it's been this way for, I don't even know how long. Right. Um, you know, we thought it would get better. This was just a phase. Um I know, I don't know how much of your audience is familiar with military couples, but, you know, I live in a very, very, you know, military, uh, military hub. And so uh-huh. in particular for military couples, um, it's very common, you know, we PCS every several years, which is they change duty stations, right? We yeah. change duty stations every three years. And so we just kind of, you know, on to the next and all of a sudden the career's over and it's like, Oh, I don't like you. Like, you know, anymore. Uh-huh. Oh, this is actually still a problem. And it was a problem at our second duty station and I'm still bothered by it. So I think couples get distracted. I'm very much and just on autopilot in the throes of life, hoping that things will get better. Hey everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the healthy love and money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. I think couples get distracted um, very much and just on autopilot in the throes of life, hoping that things will get better. Well, and this raises, and I'm picking, the military is getting picked on here only because we're ta- you brought up the military, but we could p- pick on medicine or any other profession. So, you know, just you know, please, any military listeners know I have great respect for the military. But the military is a great example of having a very clear cultural ethos of how to be relationally with people. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And every profession is true of that. Correct. The military, I think, is just a little easier to put your finger on, like, that. just how intense that really is and how strong of an identity piece that becomes. And yet, I imagine what a barrier to intimacy the military mindset can be. Um, and this is not like the, the military mindset makes sense in the context of which they're trying to serve and do what they're doing, but it doesn't make it easy to come then home and be this intimate, vulnerable partner. No, it doesn't. And I talk a lot about that, like with my military or even I have dual military couples um, uh-huh. or even, you know, we're in a, um, you know, I'm in Augusta, Georgia, so it's a large Intel hub. Uh, So it's not just the military, it's also government contractors. And it's, I can't tell you about my day. Um, Oh, right. From a security standpoint, I cannot tell you about my day or what goes on about, you know, these long 10 hour shifts that I do four days a week. Right. You talk about barriers to intimacy. um, You know, that's pretty extreme in my opinion. 
especially given what I assume, you know, projects and uh, the work that the military and our intel community, um, you know, is doing, you know, you talk about trauma and distressful, um, and distressing events and distressing work to not have a safe place to really come home to and a partner, you know, can be a huge barrier to just couple intimacy. When you get, I mean, you're working with the the shadow or the dark side of humanity a lot of times in those roles and right. trying to pr- protect the rest of humanity or society from these very dark parts of our human experience. And that has psychological impacts too, right? Sure. And so there's no small order being a couple. So we have all of these at play. And then our favorite topic, at least my favorite topic is in light of all that, we still got to manage our budget and save for our future and pay for the kids' college and, oh, maybe take a vacation once in a while. And I know you were just sharing, so I hope it's okay for me to point this out, but um, take that second trip down to Orlando because our daughter won her cheer competition. Congratulations, honey. Uh, Now I have to spend $5,000 more. Thanks. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So like, what do you see there? How do you see doing the work that you're doing, helping couples navigate their money differences and getting on the planning page together? Yeah, I think from, you know, the money side of things, um, and I guess maybe why I'm drawn to it as well is that it's really a content issue that um, sure has got a lot of numbers and we need to be on the same page, but it's an intimacy issue, um, a vulnerability and intimacy issue. And so obviously being, you know, couples attachment focused therapist, you know, that's kind of my jam. At least that's how from my lens, right? Yeah, right. So like, yeah. But I think it provides, you know, having to navigate the money piece or really, um, I mean, it's really tricky, you know, when you come into it with one, just an attachment style, let's just say maybe more of an anxious attachment style. And then depending upon that anxious attachment style, you've got or layered onto it, these money beliefs um, that, you know, depending upon where they come from can be exacerbated in certain relationships. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think more of like a pursuer withdrawer, someone who's a little more avoidant intimacy avoidant and, you know, just navigating where and how the money piece kind of plays into the relationship, but also on the individual level. So it's really complicated. Um, Makes it fun for me intellectually, like a challenge keeps me on my toes, but it's not easy. And then you throw in kids and just whatever phase of life, you know, the couple is in and it's not easy. You know, you know, just as well as I do professionally and personally, right. It's just not. Yeah. I mean, I know, I mean, I'm doing this work because of my own intimate relationship and I'm not blaming my wife. Like the police here listeners, I love my wife, but like just our own ongoing relationship with each other and money and expectations and understanding of money. It just, the further I go, the deeper I go in this journey, the more I realize how different we really are around money and, and expectations and how much that shapes every interaction we have around money and budgeting and, and the roles that we take on even I think get shaped by that. Right. Is I, when we met, my wife and I met, I was very financially responsible and as we've been married, because my wife is also very responsible, she's picked up more and more responsibility around the household finances, which actually allowed me to be a little more on the carefree side, yeah. which has been really nice on the one hand, but frustrating for her. 
And so how we start helping couples bring out a more robust experience around money um, where they felt restricted before they can feel open and where they felt open, maybe they can feel a little bit of natural restriction. Um, meaning like if you've just been used to doing whatever you want financially, what does it actually mean to live within some boundaries? So let me bring myself off of this little diatribe about my wife and I. When we're thinking about working with couples in money difference, would you say that one of the primary tasks is actually to restore some level of relational connection before really even working on the money? That is how I work because, uh-huh. and I guess that you can kind of do both simultaneously, like in tandem, but I do think that, you know, in order to make strides on paper, yeah. um, there has to be a greater relational connection there, a willingness, right? Because when couples come in, if they're, sitting on opposite sides of the couch uh, from a willingness standpoint most most individual partners aren't really willing to move kind of to uh even just the halfway point or, or move at all really. <laughs> yeah, that's right that's yeah, right really not willing to move um in general speaking and so we're going to start talking about um and healing some of the financial patterns and wounds um, and maybe even part of the reason they're in therapy is for some type of financial infidelity. So maybe the wound is attached to finances. Um, you know, I, I think that some healing has to be there uh, so that there's greater willingness, but also vulnerability that can be, um, you know, worked through and talked on uh, before kind of those numbers really start to move in a positive direction. So what are some of the more common money wounds that you've seen in your practice? What are those things where people carry forward pain around money? Oh, financial infidelity is probably the biggest one that I've, that I see. And what does that mean? What does that look like? I mean, without violating confidentiality, is there some stories you could. I do. I've had had some um, overspenders where, um, you know, the couples that I've had, the, Female partners have been overspenders, um, compulsive spenders. I probably, you know, would say and have spent tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars of savings in retirement funds, mm-hmm. um, you know, unknowingly to, with uh, unknowingly to their partner, um, right. or have you know racked up tens, hundreds of do- thousands of dollars in credit card debt, um, and so that type of betrayal. Um, can feel it can it feels very much like a betrayal to the other partner some secrecy there you know from a infidelity standpoint you know affairs um so physical affairs but where there was a lot of money you know being given and spent on that person the affair partner that sometimes depending upon the the other person um you know that can you know be the hardest part you spent all this money on this person and yet you would bitch and complain about having to get me a birthday gift. Like, you know. Uh, that's a great example. <laughs> yeah. And all of this so freely on them. But when it comes to me meeting my needs um, or doing something for me, you couldn't do. So, you know, couples can get really hung up on um, some of those things. Um, yeah. I know you've talked about addiction too, but like sex addiction you know, there's a financial piece there that's tied that I've had couples where, you know, mass amounts of money have been spent to 
um, you know, perpetuate a sex addiction and, you know, the other partner being very stuck on the fact that you spent our kids college savings, you know, on the sex addiction. So yeah, those are just, you know, kind of a few ish example. And I've changed a few things around, um, within some of those stories, obviously not to, you know, um, uh, share too much, but yeah, it's, it's deep. Well, this is really that trauma and attachment and addiction are also deeply interwoven. And it's at least my understanding of the science and, and the clinical experiences when we have early childhood attachment wounds, it really leaves us much more at risk for addiction issues and, and depression and anxiety and all the other mental health disorders as well. And they all impact our ability to manage the flow of money through our life and Impulse control is such a large part of financial management, uh, healthy sense of self, right? And so we use money as a tool to navigate all of that stuff. And so doing the work of, of healing is so critical to being able to manage your finances effectively. It's not just knowing how money works technically. Right. Um, in a lot of cases, you know, there's people that know how money works technically, but are not able to use that knowledge because their brain's just so overrode with, with mental health and relationship health issues. Yeah. I think that when we know, when we have that security within ourselves and with our partner, it makes, you know, managing money, it makes professional development. It makes so many other things just possible um, and easier uh, when we have that you know, it's interesting. I pick up on that professional development piece really quick because I think about, you know, for my own sense of self, how my professional development has actually been a, a major source of money pain for my wife and I, mm-hmm. or has become that. And externally, it looks good and people are very congratulatory of, of me and all that I've done and accomplished. But the deeper truth is it comes out of relational anxiety. Mm, yeah. Um, so yeah. much of my, my professional development and educational attainment and not feeling like I'm enough in relationship or comparison to my wife. Yeah. Right. And so that's the other side though, is if you're compulsively seeking to grow in your profession, is it grown? Is it coming out of relational insecurity? And there's no amount of, no amount of education you can get that will overcome relational insecurity. No, it's interesting that you bring, can bring that up we could go off probably in a lot of different directions here, but, you know, examining that, um, not just professional development, but just really anything, you know, those motivators for why are we doing what we're doing? Where is it coming from? You know, looking at it from an attachment lens, uh, I think can be, you know, it might shed some light, you know? Yeah. Do you, now, so attachment is also multi-generational and money patterns are multi-generational. So can you talk a little bit about multi-generational money patterns? Oh, man. Yeah, we need to get the genogram out. Um, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, those attachment wounds, right? Like we, we talked about just even from a brain standpoint, um, you know, they get passed down and can be passed down um, through through the generations. Um, but even those habits, those money habits and spending habits, you know, I talk about or have talked about, you know, at least for me personally, like, um, I have probably more of an anxious, um, 
Mm, I probably don't want to admit anxious avoidant, but a little more anxious, anxious avoidant attachment style kind of there. And, you know, with that, um, you know, I've always used spending or buying uh, as a way of probably coping with some of that uh, anxiety, relational anxiety. Um, And that's been a female pattern in my family um, for several generations. Um, Grew up, you know, shopping trips were a way of bonding, um, but also combating relational distress as well. Um, yeah. So I think that being able to look at those familial patterns, um, on on a generational standpoint and and notice making those connections really can be helpful and has been helpful for me at least. Um, although sometimes uncomfortable to look at, uh, not sometimes actually most of the time it's very uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh It's actually really uncomfortable to look at all the time, but um, certainly it's helpful and has, proven to be really helpful within, you know, at least my own marriage, um, you know, with Clayton being able to recognize that, um, you know, there was a lot of secrecy around shopping and like bonding. Um, and this Mm. is going back like generations, you know, and so, you know, trying to do things different, seeing, um, what that can do for a relationship marriage, um, the stress it puts on, not just the marriage, but then the child, right? On a child level and not wanting to perpetuate some of, uh, some of those um, habits, at least for me personally, I've had to take a very intentional look at myself and make a conscious, make some conscious changes, you know, in order to not do that, especially with my daughter, not wanting that to carry on with her. So I'm, and I'm making this up, Ashley. So this, I don't know that this is true of your experience. Um, but you and Clayton, your husband, could get in a fight. And under unhealthy patterns, you may be take your daughter and go shopping and say, honey, let's go shopping and let's, let's just go have a good time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Because you're pissed off at your husband. Correct. And your daughter maybe heard, let's just say for this scenario, heard you fighting with your husband. Yep. And next thing she knows, she's being whisked off to go to the department store and buy some pretty dresses. Yeah. Is that yeah. kind of what we're talking about in a very practical sense? And then it's like, yeah. and then the message comes through like, oh, but don't tell your dad that we just did this. Correct. Yeah. Hide it in the back of the closet. Mm-hmm. And then now you feel better about yourself. Like I did something nice for my daughter. There's this false sense of bonding though, at least from a parent child standpoint. Uh-huh. Um, you know, some of the, it's not just the financial damage and secrecy here, but also there's false sense of what bonding right, is yeah. and kind of looks like. But yeah, that's, you would say you've got it pretty spot on. Right. So, and that, listeners know that's not necessarily, that's not Ashley's dynamic. I'm oh, just making is, up something to make it practical. Correct. That could, that is given what I am saying and talking about. Yes, that is a practical example. Right. A hypothetical, yes. Another hypothetical, right? We're, we're just making it up is you and your husband have a big fight over money and that there's not enough money and he goes off and works harder to try to make more money. Um, and then you're frustrated because he's not home. And in your frustration, you go out and shop some because if he's, if I, if I don't get him, at least I have his money. So, and I'm not saying it's conscious or it's right or good, but this is, these yeah. are some of the things that like, I've seen happen with couples where yeah. 
I'm lonely, right? I'll just get on Amazon, right? Uh huh. Right. Or Etsy, or whatever, right? Your guilty pleasure is. Wherever that outlet happens to be doesn't matter. It's the process that matters. Yeah. Yeah. When there's relational disconnection, shopping can fill in the void. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I know we were talking about just generational patterns here, but like, I think that watching, um, watching that over a generation, yeah, it has impact. It definitely has impact, uh, on future generations and future wealth, uh, wealth accumulation. Right. Because our, our part of our wealth accumulation is directly related to how much money we spend on everything else. For sure. Yeah. What does it take for couples to really think about building wealth together? Like that, just even saying that feels weird because it feels like so much for me, at least in the money world is wealth building is always kind of framed in this individual journey pursuit. Oh yeah. Not as a couple's pursuit, but as an individual's pursuit. And maybe it's the individual's pursuit in responsibility in response to caring for their family, but it's not positioned as like, husband and wife or wife and wife or husband and husband partner team yeah. going together to build their family security. It's like, no, that's my, res- it's this compartmentalization of responsibility around creating ultimately not just financial security, but financial wealth that will support them in their later years. Yeah. One that's fascinating to me, I think only because of, you know, being a relational therapist, I'm like, like, how do what? <laughs> like, how right. do you, but I'll share that, you know, personally. Um, so Clayton and I have been together for almost two decades, married, you know, like 15 years. We're college sweethearts. And so he took the CFP courses in college. So pretty quickly, like became familiar with concepts like that and, and was always more financially responsible than I was. But when we got married, I remember we started, I was 22, a baby. This <laughs> baby. Uh-huh. Baby, like we started very intentionally every year creating couples goals, and some of those goals were looking at our net, our net worth and wealth mm. right? Um, and I say that now, and I'm like, God, like who were we? What nerds? Like we, like, yeah, <laughs> whoa, yes. I feel like I'm gonna lose a massive amount of cool points for. <laughs> it's okay. Better to be wealthy together and uncool than very cool and no wealth. Probably. Yes. 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 But from, you know, the start of like our marriage, we've always done yearly goals. And some of that part of those goals have been focused on, you know, reducing our debt, um, thus increasing our net worth, but just making those financial decisions together. Um, Those are just independently and separately. And so, you know, when you ask, like, what does it take for like a couple to build wealth? Like you have to do it together and be on the same page. And I'm a massive, massive proponent for setting goals together. Um, whether you meet them or like whatever, it's just the act of coming together sometimes and talking about, you know, what we want the next year or the next five years to look like. Um, it, it, it takes us from living on autopilot 365 days and 23 hours of here like just being really intentional and like present in the moment you know for a one hour um you know hopefully it's more but i think it starts with couples coming together and being willing to talk about things and creating a a shared vision uh for what they want would you say that 
you and Clayton have gotten better at that process together over time? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Actually, you know, we hit a really interesting point in our marriage not too long ago um, in that the goals in which we had initially like set out and kind of created personally and professionally, we got to a point where it was like, oh, like we've kind of met those. Like now what? Oh, yeah. That's a great place to get. Uh, it's a great it's a great place to get and it's a scary place scary, to get. Because, scary as hell to get to as Right. Well. Because then all of a sudden when you're like 35, uh, hypothetically, I'm not saying that I'm 35 here, but you know. Yeah, right, right. right. <laughs> and, and then you're like, what do I want the next 10 to 15 years to look like? And you have no idea. That can be a bit scary. And maybe, maybe it's, you know, I would imagine for even a lot of couples, maybe that's not their experience, but even just sitting down and going, I don't know, that can be really scary, a feeling of, I don't know what I want the next several years to look like. I'm just living here in the moment and trying to survive. Like I'm just trying to pay my bills and, you know, <laughs> get yeah. my kids, you know, this, it can be a really scary feeling to kind of not know. So while we've made great gains and efforts, at least personally for Clayton and I, we've also reached you know, a little bit of that point, I think we're coming out on the backside of it, of not really knowing what the path looks like. And, um, that requires a lot of work together. <laughs> a lot of work. Yes. That, I, I love it. And I want to celebrate your shared success together in having the foresight and the learning and the practice and the willingness to stick with setting goals and continue to set them every year. And, and now getting to, 20 years of being together, 15 years plus of marriage and you're accomplishing them. And it, this is a phenomenon I've experienced myself and heard many other people struggle with is once you hit your, your first set of whatever were big goals, it creates a void. Yeah. And that's, and then it's like a trying to figure out what now are meaningful goals to us. And, and it, it's a period of searching and questing together. That's not answered in a weekend for most folks. It, it's over a period of time and it's okay, but it's a gray space because sometimes our goals also give us a false sense of security and safety and direction. Absolutely. So, yeah. There's, there's a lot of richness there. You throw in at least my, you know, anxious, a little more oh, anxious yeah. attachments, right? And I'm, you know, like a pursuer, like pursuing the hell out of like, we can figure this out, like, like this, like, come on you know Clayton we gotta like come up with a plan and you know and he's like whoa well mama just take it easy here bring it down you know disengage down mode so those dynamics can play out you know even even within the goal setting how we manage our partners expectations around goal setting and what we do there and the goal setting I mean that's a huge barrier to couples coming together I know it's challenging for my wife and I that like I'm very future oriented. She's much more present oriented. Right. And so like I'm a dreamer and I want to set goals to work towards things. And she wants to just make sure things are running now. And right. both are very valuable and very good. They're complements. Right? They're complementary. And that's the big trick is seeing them as complementary, not antagonistic. Right. Easier said right. than done. It is easier said than done for sure. <laughs> but language is powerful, right? Because I think language a lot of is powerful. We get really stuck in this. Well, we're opposites. We're opposites. And you know, what I what I try to help my couples lean into is that you guys complement one another and you need both, right? And right. 
both are valuable and great. So yeah, not opposites, we're compliments. Well, I hate to bring this conversation to a close, but this feels like a really nice place to just bring it to a close. Is You set a role model in your own vulnerability of talking about the process of setting goals and saying it does happen, it does come. So if you've not had that experience or seen it, there are people that are doing it. My wife and I are in a similar boat to you in that way. And it's not been a perfect and smooth ride. And we have definitely learned along the way. And we're continuing to learn about how to do goal setting together. So this is not a one and done kind of thing. This is a lifelong practice for a flourishing relationship. But it's also, you know, that your differences are complementary. I love that. That's such a good, good thing to be reminded of. Ashley, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And I look forward to having you on the show again in the future. Thanks, Ed. I enjoyed it. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money, Ed. Ed.